you know the better question is what is the degree to which the information and content and media that we consume and produce and engage with inform our world view the better question is what is the degree to which we can inform ourselves around not being taken in by that which we may believe in welcome to between the binary a limited series podcast highlighting the priorities prospects and challenges of technology in the global south through the voices of experts in and from the global south. This podcast is curated for the John H. MacArthur Research Fellowship Program in cooperation with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. I'm Elena Noor, one of the two inaugural MacArthur Fellows and your host for this series. hasn't yet explored the impact and implications of online content on real-world interactions. So today, I am particularly delighted to be joined by Dr. Sanjana Hatotua. Sanjana wears a number of hats, but among them are a special advisor at ICT for Peace Foundation and research fellow at Dunedin, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Sanjana pioneered the use of social media for activism and online citizen journalism in his home country of Sri Lanka, and since 2002, continues to curate a comprehensive digital archive of material linked to peace and conflict there. Sanjana, welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Sanjana, I remember how not even 10 years ago, talk about online content was almost divisive in the world. You had countries, particularly multi-ethnic, multi-religious nations in the global south that were very concerned about the impact of online content on social cohesion and regime stability. But by contrast, you had countries in the global north that saw these concerns as little more than an excuse for censorship by authoritarian governments. Then the 2016 US presidential election happened uh, amid great controversy. And all of a sudden, terms like misinformation and disinformation started proliferating. So to kick things off, let's get some fundamentals straight. What is the difference between misinformation, disinformation, and how does hate speech come into that mix? I would hope that many listeners would know already, because these are fundamental questions, as you've said, we've been talking about, at least in the global north, from what happened on both sides of the Atlantic in 2016. On one side, you had the Brexit referendum, and on the other side, you had a campaign to elect and then subsequently dealing with the consequences of electing President Trump. And consequently, you've had serious interrogation of the architectures of news, information, and media in society, and correspondingly, the degree to which what academics call affective polarization, which is the degree to which societies are rent asunder from within, based on historical divisions, obviously, but also the amplification of hate, hurt, and harm over social media, the degree to which what you, in your introduction, said social cohesion is put at risk. All of this to say, Elena, that I think we need to ask better questions. And that's not a reflection on your question, but I think that that kind of question doesn't get to where we want to go. Essentially, the easiest answer you can give, and I'm not going to spend too much of time answering that question because I think listeners are better serviced by any number of articles and 
academics and reports and academic papers and journal articles and newspaper articles and podcasts and a whole cornucopia of material that answers that question. So you don't need me to answer it. There's a wealth of material on the web, freely accessible and authoritative and also grounded in, I suppose, where you are in the United States and the context there. I think though we need to ask better questions and we need to, as societies, need to learn how to ask and frame uh, those questions. The better question is what is good? What is the nature and nurture of good? How do we get there? How do we see what's good? Who constructs and architects and are the custodians of that good? How do we sustain it online? And what is the degree to which whatever good that we want to bring about as societies is connected to what those societies have undergone? What are the responsibility of those at the center and right at the forward of constructing or as custodians of that good to bring in and embrace those who've been at the, the margins of society? Very often, those most at risk or the vulnerable, and different societies have different vulnerabilities and vulnerable communities. Uh, they may be immigrants, they may be LGBTIQ people, they may be the young, they may be the old, they may be recent immigrants, they may be uh, indigenous people, the Adivasis, as in South Asia you call them, the Aboriginal communities. They might be people who speak a particular language, who have a particular faith, who might not belong to majoritarian architectures of democracy as they are constructed. They might not belong to majoritarian notions of identity and how the state has been constructed and shaped and formed and believed in. And so, you know, the better question is, what is the degree to which the information and content and media that we consume and produce and engage with inform our worldview. The better question is, what is the degree to which we can inform ourselves around not being taken in by that which we may believe in? So there's the rub, Elena. You know, your question seems to, and it, again, I mean, it's just not a personal thing. I mean, the question is a good one, but I want to ask the better question, which is that these questions about delineating and defining mismal or disinformation the easy answer is that it's based on intent. But then the better question is, or the harder question is, how do you determine intent? What is intent? Intent, I suppose, is easier. I mean, the simplest answer is in today, the, you know, the today that we are recording this podcast in, if something comes from the Kremlin or from Mr. Putin, uh, it is going to be malevolent, insidious, and malicious, and very violent. So that is intentionally something that is going to be obviously false, and a blatant lie. But then how do you judge what I am saying? Who are you? What is your authority? How do you judge? How do I judge? How do listeners judge the veracity of this podcast? That's a harder question. For example, we, the two of us might have met in some dark alley and decided to do this podcast to misinform people by our political ideology and ideas. We didn't. So who are... <laughs> Not a dark alley. <laughs> right. But, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, the yeah. better question is how do we in, I mean, I don't have, I mean, I do have answers and I think that's an open question that's, that, that societies need to grapple with policymakers and intermediaries and companies as well. What is the nature of the information society that we're living in? What are the nature of information disorders that we're dealing with? And what is the insidious nature of malevolent, but 
highly sophisticated campaigns that play with our emotions by portraying something to be such that we believe in it because it plays with our beliefs. It plays with our core understanding and our perceptions of the world. These are, these are things that are very real. And you're there over there. I am here in Atharwa, New Zealand at the moment, but I live in two worlds in a way. I also inhabit, and we can talk about this more, right. my, my home in Sri Lanka. And mm-hmm. in, you know, in the global south, we've been inhabiting these worlds for much longer than the West and the global north woke up to the realities that we've been negotiating in our embodied selves um, for a decade or more. So, I mean, uh, I, I just, it's, it's not really an answer to your question, but I think it's also a question that we should be at a meta level asking ourselves, what are the questions we need to construct in order to deal with, understand, respond, and be agile and meaningful in the responses, laws, regulations, offline and online that we come up with um, in our understanding to deal with the information disorders that are plaguing our societies today. No, that's a great provocation. But how do we get to that level of consciousness where we're asking those better questions, those harder questions that you talked about? When, you know, the on the ground, the reality is that we talk about this lack of digital literacy amongst folks. How do you, how do you figure out, distinguish what makes sense, what doesn't? And if you can't even have that judgment at the basic levels, how do you get to that level of awareness to ask the right questions? Well, these are broad questions, right? I mean, it, what I come at it with is the importance and the fundamental importance of having a situated, grounded approach. In that, you can talk about this as we are doing at a meta, at an abstract level, right? I mean, in I come from a background, my master's was in peace and conflict negotiations. And in that body of research, you have pigs and swans who are part of a peace process. And it's not derogatory. I mean, the swans are those in a negotiations process who might not necessarily be at the table drafting a peace agreement, but can see the horizon, can see a a better cartography as a consequence of their higher altitude. They can see what lies in the future. They can see well into the past and they give a perspective that might be lacking to the pigs. The pigs are those who are, you know, with their noses to the ground, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, and then really working, you know, the real politic of it. And you kind of, and the point about this is that you need pigs and swans, right? I mean, you, you, one, just the custodian of a peace process um, being one is going to make that, that process fail. So my, my point is that you, you need to have an, an analogous process with an answer to the question that you posed that takes us to the degree to which these concerns are addressed in the locations they're addressed in. So just to make it easier for listeners, what may be relevant and meaningful and reactive and responsive and urgent and pertinent in Bangalore may not be what is uh, necessary and vital to do in Delhi. And this is just one country. Mm -hmm. Leave aside Dhaka uh, or Washington, D.C. or Colombo or Sydney or Tokyo or Buenos Aires, right? So language, community, culture, context, country, history, platform, algorithms, policies, laws, regulations, and the patina of violence, which is marginal and and erased, as well as recognized and written. This is what we call a socio-technological problem. You know, it's that's why it's tough. Otherwise, you and I could have, you know, at the end of this podcast, come up with a solution and then, you know, put it out into the world. 
the definitions, for example, of hate speech don't exist. You know, and, and this is why the companies themselves are struggling. This is why governments around the world are struggling. Mm. In the United States, you have this conversation about Section 230. In the, Euro, in the European Union, you have the Digital Services Act. Um, Australia is going its own way. Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, India, Sri Lanka at one point wanted to go down that way. So, you know, different countries, different territories, different contexts uh, need to be recognized from a grounded, situated manner. It's only then that you can start to unpack and unravel this. But let me just say that at the same time, and this is why I think listeners are going to get rather confused at the end of all of this, um, there's also global things. I mean, at the end of the day, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and TikTok um, and Google, these are all global platforms, right? So that's the, that's the tension, right? You have, it's almost like um, trying to come about, uh, uh, you know, establish a, a universality to these platforms, when in actual fact, these platforms are seen and used and perceived in fundamentally different ways, depending on where you are in the world. So there will always be that tension. Right. Well, you know, part of this podcast, and I say this only half jokingly, is to confuse people because very often we get comfortable in our assumptions based on what we read and what we hear. So Sanjana, you talked about locations uh, and context. Let's let's get into some of these locations. Uh, you've been studying the relationship between the online and offline content extensively in your home country of Sri Lanka, but also in the aftermath of the Christchurch massacre in the country that you live in now, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Could you tell the listeners what the link is between online content, social cohesion, and communal violence? And whether you have seen common threads in both these countries that you've studied so much? That's a great question. Um, and the simplest answer is complicated. <laughs> um, uh, you know, in Sri Lanka, I mean, in Sri Lanka, what happened was around 2012, when the first apps for Facebook and Twitter were introduced onto smartphones, was when the explosion of the user base started. So I started South Asia's first Twitter and first Facebook accounts in 2007 for civic media, because I saw the potential of civic media hosted or platformed on Facebook and Twitter respectively, being not impervious, but extremely resistant to what at the time was fairly strong state censorship in the country. To a very violent degree, they were murdering journalists, um, and they were burning down printing houses, and printing presses, and they were shutting down television channels. There was a chilling effect um, that was very real. And I thought that these platforms gave a way to bear witness to violence in, in, in a manner that couldn't be easily silenced or shut down or, or blocked. Uh, what happened was after 2012, with the explosion of users it, globally, but in the global south in particular, you didn't have companies keeping pace with the instrumentalization of those platforms for hate, hurt, and harm. So in 2012, I came out in actually, we, we started looking at it in 2012, but the first report from South Asia looking at the instrumentalization of Facebook in 2014 was published by the Center for Policy Alternatives, which is a think tank based in Colombo that I was a, a senior researcher at. And we looked at then, at the time, how Buddhist violent extremism was instrumentalizing Facebook for the targeting of Muslims and the amplification of Islamophobia. And would, you know, I don't think listeners would believe this was in 2014, right? Looking at things that had happened two years prior, 
and many, many moons before 2016 and Trump or Brexit. And the first time that Facebook really engaged with us was in 2018, in March, the start of my doctoral research, when the country was going through another spate of violence against Muslims that made the front page of the New York Times for the role that Facebook and Meta's product platform services played. So that's the thing, you know. So countries with a significant democratic deficit and communal racial differences uh, that are that are instrumentalized for violence. And in the case of Sri Lanka, nearly a 30-year-old war, a civil war, invariably shapes the degree to which we participate and see each other and engage and produce content on social media. And if you're not cognizant of that, then it's going to be the kind of violence that you see offline that is going to be reflected online. It's a very simple thing. You don't need a doctorate to kind of figure that out. What the doctorate helped me to do is to kind of actually have the data and evidence and then say, yes, this is a, of academic rigor to something that I think is intuitively known. I mean, sometimes it's important to also do that, to get to that place. Um, now, compare and contrast that to what is often called a high trust society, as different as you can get from Sri Lanka, which is Aotearoa, New Zealand, where I'm presently at. And that's the interesting thing. So you would think that in an OECD, G7, you know, global West, uh, you know, global North, a Western country with very high democratic indicators of democracy, of the team, but, you know, of the, of the strength of democracy, free press, you know, political media culture, fundamentally different, that you would think that, you know, social media is great. Unfortunately, and, 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 and everything is fine, but unfortunately what you find is that as of today, as, as of the time that we're recording this, things are not fine and they're not going to be fine. And they seem to have a path to dependency that is very disturbing, uh, that mirrors what happened on the 6th of January 2021 in Capitol Hill, insofar as the inability or unwillingness to address that which is going wrong at pace insofar as the generation of violence the generation of dangerous speech, the generation of antagonism, the amplification of anger, the instrumentalization of anxiety that is occurring every day at greater volume and velocity in this country, that is instrumentalizing historic divisions and racism and communities at the, who have been at the margins of society, including the Maori and Pacifica communities, for example. So again, it's the weaponization of deep-rooted, decades-old socio-political division um, that is now being conducted at pace, of course, uh, with the COVID-19 infodemic and what happened in these past two years as an accelerant. So a lot of conspiratorialism, a lot of misinformation linked to the vaccines, linked to COVID-19, accelerated um, what we see today as information disorders in New Zealand. So in a strange way, the simplest way of putting this is that what it's what we call a symbiotic relationship. It's inextricably entwined. That goes back to my earlier answer. You have to take a grounded perspective because what is on the ground offline uh, and how we physically see each other, talk to each other, and importantly, in our, how we negotiate difference matters in our understanding of what is being done online to either amplify the worst amongst us or to accentuate um, the better angels in society. And it's a simultaneous interplay, right? I mean, think of disinformation like a DJ and he, she, or they would have little dials and the crowd or the audience would dance according to the tune that you play. So that's also another way of looking at this, which is, uh, you know, 
you have to think of it as a as a relationship between the producers of hate, hurt, and harm, um, who are located in a particular context, and what happens offline matters online, and what happens online very often and very quickly shapes uh, developments and processes offline, not just at electoral moments, but generally in our day-to-day interactions as well. I love that analogy. It reminds me almost of a, of a club, right? You brought in- the- Exactly right. Exactly right. So, I mean, uh, for, the, for the listeners who actually do go clubbing, much younger to us both, yes. I think, um, we have left those days long, a long time ago. But listen, it's exactly like, it's like BPM. I mean, the beats per minute, right? And, the, you know, if you have a higher BPM and you have a higher baseline, you, you, you naturally, your body naturally moves. That's you true. can't not but be mobile. You're, 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 you might make a complete fool of yourself, but you're dancing, right? And that's the thing, right? So disinformation and misinformation producers, respectively, they, they create tunes at scale that literally shape public perception and moods. That's a very good way of actually understanding the degree to which these architectures are, are invisible, but are very, very powerful. Uh, mm. And that's exactly how it works, really. And so in keeping in line with this analogy of a club and DJs and beats, where do the social media platforms and the companies behind them, where do they sit? Are they the bouncers? And if so, what, what is their responsibility in toning down well, the, the yeah. what's going on? Well, you know, it's they are the consoles, really. Okay. They are the mixing. You know, they are the they are the LPs that you scratch and that you fade in and fade out. You know, if anybody, if you, any of the listeners have actually been brave enough to go to a DJ console, you'll see that it's a pretty sophisticated thing. You know, and it is the instrument through which you produce what the audience then dances to and responds to in a favorable or unfavorable manner. That's the skill of the DJ. And so intermediaries, social media companies provide DJs with the tools or the platforms through which you call them platform affordances. It's a highfalutin way of saying that each platform, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, Vimeo, Facebook, pages, Facebook groups, Instagram, WhatsApp, iMessage, you know, different apps, products, and platforms have different ways in which you can do things on them. Right. So things that you can do on on TikTok, you can't do on Twitter. Things that you can't do on Twitter, you can't do on Facebook pages. Things that you can do on Facebook pages, you can't do on Instagram. And things that you can share and do and communicate on Instagram, you can't on WhatsApp. Each one has different ways in which you can do different things. And so when you have that smorgasbord, when you have all those options, right, you can craft them in ways that simultaneously can help or harm a democratic fabric. So your bouncer analogy also applies because at the end of the day, um, what you want to do is you, you don't want disruptive elements to come on to the dance floor. So if, every, if all of us are dancing the waltz, you don't want somebody who comes and you know, does break dance, right? Because it just would disrupt the whole, the whole affair. And so you know, there might be another dance floor that has you know, R&B or, or break beat or break dance or, or modern jazz. You know. So uh, the whole point is that they also, with their policies and community guidelines, for example, try to ensure that bad faith actors stay at the door. So it's both providing the manner, the, the, the tools through which you can produce and promote and propagate content, but it's also trying to keep through policies 
uh, bad faith actors at the door. Now, obviously, this is imperfect, right? I mean, you're just talking about global problems that are local in nature that you cannot and will not ever solve through algorithms, artificial intelligence, machine or machine learning, in as much as they try and in as much as those things also help and contribute to a solution. Um, you're still going to need high-touch approaches and grounded, contextual, situated approaches as well. So all of this, again, is a long way of saying, I mean, we're not going to come, we're not going to you know, grasp the nettle of how complicated this is. But let me just say this. I mean, I am beyond anger and frustration as a Sri Lankan, having studied this for well over a decade, around the degree to which there is a laissez-faire attitude from Silicon Valley to the problems that we have a patina of negotiating, but have only come on to the radar, as you said in your first question, say after 2016, and may I also add after the 6th of January, 2021. And you know, the thing is this, when Frances Haugen said what she did, and I'm not devaluing what she did or undermining the courage of what she did. I'm just saying that in the global South, it was passe. We know, we knew what she was talking about. We have been trying to say the same thing. Um, and we are still, still trying to say the same thing. So when, again, with good faith and with no malevolence, uh, you know, take a, you know, at the time of recording this, President Obama, it's about uh, one and a half weeks after President Obama made his speech at Stanford. And for many of us, that speech on disinformation was rather anodyne. You know, it was, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, so what's new here? Maybe it's good that President Obama is saying all of this. Maybe it's good that Francis Haugen is revealing all of this. Maybe it's good that Western governments are now taking cognizance of things that have been plaguing us for much longer. And so we are here and we are ready to help support this hard decision-making, this hard challenge, which is called a wicked problem space. So trying to get to grips with a beast that Pandora's box that was opened well before in our parts of the world and in the West. But it, it, it is something that we've been thinking about for a much longer time and have been begging, and I use that word consciously, we have been begging social media companies to take us seriously and take these problems seriously. And it's only now that we are, we are starting to see, in a way, that, that coming about. Yeah, I guess it goes to your point that you've made repeatedly the, the relativity of it all right so what is breaking news in one part of the world has been continuing history in possibly most of the world and uh, we've in the global south have been struggling with this for a long time as you pointed out but um we're recording this just a couple of days after elon musk's uh, 44 billion buyout offer was accepted by the board of twitter and you've had some experience with Twitter yourself, right, Sandana? And back in 2007, you mentioned uh, you set up South yep. Asia's first Twitter and Facebook accounts for civic media. Yep. And uh, you also received Aotearoa as New Zealand's first ever Data for Good grant by Twitter yep. to use Twitter's data itself yep. uh, to study how online conversations can be used to promote good rather than division and exclusion. What does this buyout proposal mean? And, and what does Twitter owned by Elon Musk mean for free speech on the one hand, however that's conceived, and uh, perhaps conversely polarization on the other? Or, or is that even a fair contrast? Well, it's early days yet, and the signs aren't good. <laughs> um, Mr. Musk's 
beliefs and notions and the manner in which he articulates them on the platform that he now owns aren't anchored to sound knowledge, lived experience, or a careful study of what he's talking about, which is generally to say is a signature associated with Mr. Musk, who constantly opines on things that he has no idea around the complexity of. And you can see that I'm struggling to be <laughs> polite here because it is profoundly worrying the degree to which a mere few days after he has bought this platform, that C-suite, senior executives and management who have been tirelessly working to rid and safeguard the platform of toxicity and harms and misogyny and right-wing extremism and white supremacism. And, and by the way, all forms of, of, of uh, violent ideation and dangerous speech from across the political spectrum have now been platformed, have now been given amplification. Women who are very senior have been now targeted by Mr. Musk's legion of followers. And it's toxic. It's a tsunami of bile, of sexism, of violence, of rape-adjacent ideation, and a toxic, misogynistic, hyper-masculine culture that is directed now through the platform that he owns against those at the platform trying to make it better for everybody. So it's not a situation that we have encountered before. And it is profoundly worrying if these past 72 hours are anything to go by, what the future holds for the platform under Mr. Musk's. I wanted to say leadership, but perhaps the better word is ownership because there is no leadership that is evident. If one were to use that word in an association with principles and knowledge and domain expertise. Um, so it's more that we have a new toy. So let's play around with it. The problem is that this new toy owned by Mr. Musk, you know, I spoke to Vijay Gade, who is the senior most legal counsel at Twitter as we speak and took the hard decision to deplatform President Trump, for example. And we had a conversation last March, which was the first time she spoke about that. And that aside, I don't want to get into that. I mean, it's on YouTube, so listeners can go and check it out. But what she said was something profoundly interesting. She said 75% of Twitter users are outside the United States. That's the case with Facebook as well, the majority of users. That's the case with actually any social media platform at the moment, the Global South by order of magnitude, has more users than any number of users in the global north in general and America in particular. So you have a billionaire who doesn't know what he's doing with now a toy that is going to be instrumentalized by over 85 million of his followers and others to attack, harm, target, and direct violence towards individuals that they disagree with, including those at the very company that owns the platform. Um, it is profoundly disturbing because, again, I'm 
the listeners may be more tuned into this from American perspective, but just think about what that will mean in authoritarian countries where, you know, this platform has been a, a, a went and a voice and an amplification vector for democracy and human rights and bearing witness to human rights violations. Just think of a country where now in that country, and I'm talking about the United States, but in that country, authoritarians and those who are proxies to authoritarians now have a, you know, with this free speech license um, are given an amplification vector to subsume and overwhelm and direct harms against those who want to hold them accountable. Just think about LGBTIQ people, gender fluid people, trans and gay people, people who are from minority religions who are struggling as it is to make their voice heard and are found in Twitter, not just Twitter, but on Twitter mm -hmm. since 72 hours ago, a way that they can say, I am here. I exist. This is my voice. I want to be heard. I am bearing witness to things that I think you should know about too, either through my own lived experience or through what I'm bearing witness to. All of that, Elena, stands to be undermined by the, again, I'm struggling to be polite here, but just the sheer inanity and insouissance and ignorance of now the owner of this platform. It is profoundly distressing, extremely disturbing, and does not bode well in the least to democratic civil dialogue that inspires the negotiation of difference respectfully, which is what the platform has been trying to do. I'm not saying that it has been perfect, but has now, under this new ownership, no incentive to keep trying to do. And as a consequence, I worry for what this platform will become as an amplification vector for every imaginable harm that risks eroding social cohesion in all of the countries, territories, and contexts that Twitter is inextricably entwined into. I'm reminded of former UN Commissioner for Human Rights, who said, and I thought this was quite profound. David Kay, you mean? Yeah. No, um, I won't name him because it was in a closed discussion, but he... Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. But it's not David Kay. This, uh, this person mentioned that um, the U.S.'s First Amendment standard for freedom yes. of expression shouldn't be, yeah. cannot yeah. be the standard for the whole world. And as you pointed out, like most of these social media... Uh, platforms are actually used and relied upon as the internet in some cases by uh, a lot of countries in the global south. So how do people like us in the global south, some who live in the global north as well, uh, make a mark in this way when so much power is centered in only a few places? How do we create these futures for ourselves in our own image? You know what? I miss GeoCities. <laughs> it, dates, it, it dates me. Oh my goodness. You know, you know the you know those cute cats that we had and the and the and the and the, and the, the swirling 3D gifs, you know. Okay? Major throwback, yes. I know, but you know, that was the time, you know, we were all in love with the internet, you know, dial up and you know, I had a you know, I had a modem and my god, it was like exciting to get on the internet, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't it wasn't anxiety that was the under you know the 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 overwhelming emotion that kind of drove drove our engagement at the time it was excitement you know then you had ASL remember that 
you know, really <laughs> this, is, this is really, really, you know, alienating uh, by this time, you know, this is when your listeners are going to drop, your metrics are going to show, they're just going to stop this podcast. But ASL, for those listeners who don't know, was age, sex, location, um, which was the first question as, a, as an introduction um, to what at the time was uh, AOL or, or, or ICQ, remember that? ICQ, ICQ, right? So, <laughs> all these instant messages which predated iMessage and WhatsApp and, you know, everything that we use today. So, you know, I, I go back to that time. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you, you romanticize the past, right? I mean, you can't go back to the past. So when you're asking that question, I always think back to that time. And, you know, it is, it, listen, it's a philosophical question. What are the need, what do we need to do to democratize the, the platforms that we use today uh, as infrastructure? and as decentralized infrastructure. Uh, and then consequently, which is the harder thing, right? What does the democratization of a decentralized architecture mean for oversight and the governance? Given that you might then go from the blossom and bloom of hate, hurt and harm from central nodes to a million nodes that are decentralized and are ungovernable as a consequence of the way the architectures are set up. So there's a, there, there's a, there are pros and cons which we need to think through, but I think that, that should, the, the perfect shouldn't be what stymies our search for and our architectures around what's good and can be good. And that takes us away from a Silicon Valley billionaire-owned platform model whether it is Facebook and Meta, or whether it is Twitter under Mr. Musk, whether it is Google and YouTube, or whether it is TikTok. I mean, uh, these are things that as, a, as convenience, you and I both use, but are governed, are owned, are located for good and bad as well in jurisdictions and countries that sometimes may not be the best custodians of the platforms that we now use for both love, sex, and arranged marriages, as well as elections and, and politics, right? I mean, in the global south, that li literally is, is the case. So uh, now, listen, I mean, you know, there are no simplistic answers to any of this. For example, you know, one of the things that has been now questioned in the past 72 hours is that it's a net good to have some platforms outside authoritarian repressive jurisdictions. When Mr. Musk says that he wants to comply with the local laws, what does he mean? Because there are a lot of authoritarian countries around the world. So if you're going to be compliant with domestic legislation that clamps down and kills literally people who are dissenting and human rights advocates and activists, then it does compliance now under Mr. Musk mean that those people are going to be subject to hate, hurt, and harm, and violence, and murder as a consequence of him being compliant with domestic laws? Or should we also take it as a, as a good that actually these companies are compliant with American law, such that then it gives them the, the ability to uh, resist and reject authoritarian requests for data or other things that they want to do in order to entrench their own political stability. So these are hard questions. But listen, I mean, the, the, the heart of your question goes to a fundamental point. Those like ourselves, right? Those with our skin tone right. or darker, yeah. right? I, but but all, all people, 
whatever their, their complexion, who come from the global south, I think really need to be the custodians and architects of a conversation and technical architectures that take us forward in more democratized ways and networks. That's a given. How we get there, I think uh, Twitter's own Blue Sky project, for example, other projects um, that seek to establish decentralized architectures such that no one person controls them are, are, are viable technical architectures um, that may constitute the future of our social media. Uh, we don't have that at the moment. We're not going to get that very, very quickly. Uh, there are network power law signatures, for example. You know, Nobody's going to migrate to something that you and I develop overnight, no matter how democratic it is, because everybody's still on Twitter and Facebook. So there are, there, there are, there are, there are challenges and hurdles, but I think the conversation is a very, very important one uh, to have. Um, and it's just, it, by the way, it's just, it's, it's, it's about elites and power uh, and power centers, even in the global South, just to be very, very sure. clear with listeners. It, is, it isn't as if we're talking about the halcyon days of some sort of a global South, which is all one big happy family. I mean, we have our problems and structural violence in the global South too. So I think what you're, what, what was, what was implicit in our question is a radical democratization, right? I mean, it's not just, you know, wresting control away from a few in the Silicon Valley but wresting control away from elites who may control our destinies as a consequence of the wealth that they've made and the platforms that they own from the Wall Street Journal through to Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, and I think that takes us back full circle to this idea of consciousness and being cognizant of kind of the parameters in which we currently operate and trying to break free from that. So thank you so much, Sanjana, for setting us off on that path. It's a long, bumpy road ahead, but uh, with folks like you, I'm sure we'll get there one foot at a time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and found the conversation useful. This podcast series is made possible by the John H. MacArthur Research Fellowship in cooperation with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, Canada's leading think tank on Canada-Asia relations. To learn more about the fellowship or the foundation, be sure to visit asiapacific.ca.